This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And welcome to the Invested Podcast where we are talking about, well, how to get invested, right? In your life, like... Okay, yeah. that's not really what we're talking about. It's well, not? it is really what we're talking about, but only that's the what subtext. I'm interested in. Oh. <laughs> the what's real the, text, what's the surface the text? stuff we're talking about. What's the bolded text? The bolded text is <laughs> following the investing strategies of Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, Charlie Munger, people we call rulers because they said there's only two rules of investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one, which means we are... We are learning, we are talking about, we are teaching an investing strategy that says focus on not losing money when you put your money into something. And mm-hmm. the way to do that is to know what you're putting your money into and what that thing is worth. And that really is what it boils down to. Yeah. And we've both been, uh, I don't know quite, we've both been out, let's put it that way, Whew, for the last man, two weeks. Yeah. Wow. Um, so thanks for bearing with us. And we're very happy to be back. I'm very happy to be back. I can't uh, see you all that well, to be honest. But um, even blurry, you look beautiful, Dad. <laughs> oh, honey, that's so nice of you to say that. And I am so glad to be back from um, some really hardcore back surgery. They just fused two vertebrae in my spine and put in some hardware to make sure it stays there. And the surgeon who did this, a big shout out to Dr. Stephen Ray at Piedmont in uh, Atlanta, is phenomenal. I mean, I was in so much pain for so long, like three years. Yeah, you were. Yeah. And um, which culminated in, you know, I sort of bore up under it until something changed and I couldn't even stand up. And this, this incredible surgeon and his team got me in there and fixed it. And I am like new. I have no pain. It's so <laughs> awesome. Because so back surgery is scary and it doesn't always come out as well as you Super hope. Super scary. Yeah. Yeah. So huge thanks to Piedmont and uh, especially to Waters Pavilion where I stayed for three nights. I know you told everybody about it already. Oh, I did? Well, I must have oh. been on drugs. <laughs> you weren't. Okay. <laughs> Lest we discuss our medical ailments for too long yet again, we are getting back to business here, guys, with our investing practice, with our focus on Buffett and Munger, with our um, questions from you guys. We've been getting great questions and, and we're just excited to roll into the new year, going strong, feeling healthy. We were just discussing right before we started recording how your health, if it's not good, it just takes out the energy for anything else until you start feeling good again. And And money, I think, is just like that. I swear it really is. It's like if you don't have your health, that consumes you, right? And But health is not the reason you're put on the planet. Right. You're not on the planet to just be healthy. You're here for your dharma. You're here for what you want to do, here for your passions. Money is the same way. And basically, if you don't have any... 
you get consumed by trying to get it, and and that is so. I know it's so difficult. It just when you're when you're just focused on the money. Whereas yeah. if you have and money, you could focus on what you're here to do in your life, which is the whole idea. Yeah, it, and in the same way, you're not here to have money. It, money right. is a means to an end. It's a way to purchase things and experiences that make you feel good and support you and your family. So, and you know, you know, we follow Buffett, and you you look at this guy is just really a master. He's a great sort of Jedi master about so many parts of life, and I. I think that one of the aspects that's most undersold with Buffett because he's so successful as an investor and he's one of the wealthiest guys in the world starting from nothing um, is the fact that he's an incredibly, you know, he has incredible integrity and really understands life as being very important apart from money. And he doesn't really spend a lot. Mm-hmm. He lives in a nice home, but it's just a middle-class home. I mean, mm-hmm. anybody can drive by the fence and look in, you know? And unfortunately for him, thousands do. But he doesn't have extravagant tastes. He's not trying to impress anybody. He says, um, you know, people tell me I should wear nicer suits. He says, I buy expensive suits. They just look cheap on me. (laughs) So so, um, he's just an example for us of someone for whom money is just a way of keeping score, uh, you know, more than anything about how well he's doing his job. So I, I think it's really important that you realize this podcast is actually about a lot more than money. And and the reason I say that is we haven't talked about that a lot. No, that's we true. Talk. We haven't. And I would like us to because we both feel very strongly about that. I, I'm really impressed with, with an investor named Lee Lu, who we've spoken about, I think, a number of times here, um, who was at Tiananmen Square, went to Columbia, saw Buffett, and became a fund manager. And in the 1990s and is now has a track record, I think of over 30% per year compounded. Charlie Munger has money with Lee Lu. Mm-hmm. And he said something not too long ago at Columbia that I got a copy of that was fantastic, which is that investing is about you. It's about what you love, what are your passions, uh, what are you good at? Mm-hmm. And he said, all you do when you're investing is you magnify that. Mm-hmm. I, I completely thought, agree with right. that on that is so right on and i think it's where people don't do that that they get into trouble and they start trying to be somebody they're not and they start (laughs) trying to uh think that they understand something that they don't actually understand and don't really like and don't really want to get into it or it makes you feel like a big shot and you kind of want to feel like a big shot or it makes you feel like, oh, I'm like really sophisticated. I can understand something that's really difficult and, and that makes right. you feel good, you know? So there's reasons. And um, I, I think that actually leads us to a question that I would yeah. love to cover. Okay. So guys, remember how many moons ago, if you look back on your uh, podcast episodes, there's one called Quick Questions, and we did it once, and then we haven't done it since then, but we have not forgotten about the excellent questions that you guys have left um, as little audio voice files. Um, and if you want to go ahead and leave a question, you can do that at investedpodcast.com. There's a little thing on the side of the webpage that pops up, and you can leave your, uh, your audio question. So we're going to play one today from Santiago. Here we go. Hi, Daniel and Phil. I wanted to say thank you for all the information and insights you share in this podcast. They have been really, really useful for me as a beginner in my investing practice. 
I had a question. Is an event really necessary? Is it mandatory? In my investing research, I've seen great companies by analysis in the margin of safety price. But an event hasn't happened. And to say the truth, the company has never reached its, its sticker price value yet. I love to hear what you think. Thanks. Okay, so to summarize... Thank you, Santiago, first of all. Yes, thank you, Santiago. Well, really a good question. And, and it, it, uh, to summarize, he's basically saying, look, I've got a company uh, that I've seen that I'm pricing. I, mm-hmm. I found the sticker price of it. And let's say it's $50 a share sticker price. Mm-hmm. But the company is selling for $35 a share. And it hasn't ever been at its sticker price. And it hasn't dropped at all in any recent time. So there's no wait, event wait, wait. going on. So it the hasn't been hasn't to dropped. its margin of safety price. No, it hasn't been to its sticker. Okay. It hasn't been Go to on. its value. So the company has never gotten up to its value that he's calculated. It's um, it appears to maybe be on sale, but there's let's say it's a fifty dollar company and it's selling for twenty five. It appears to be on sale, but it's there's no event. It, there's nothing in the paper. There's the stock price hasn't gone down. It's actually at its highest it's ever been at twenty five dollars, and it's it's screamingly on sale. And what he's asking is. Is this? Do I have to have an event, or can I can I just find companies that are actually on sale that don't have an event and just buy oh. them, even if they so haven't been to the peak? I interpreted it very differently. Um, I maybe I just missed his question, but the, I, the question I have, and I know a lot of people have all the time, is what do you do when a company just doesn't ever seem to get down to its margin of safety price? Maybe it's hovering around its sticker price, but nothing is happening that's making it go down. But his question is different. You're right. It's, um, it's, it is at its margin of safety. It's just yeah, never been I'm, to the sticker and then there's no event. This is my first day back after surgery. <laughs> I'm a little slow. <laughs> But your question this is, is literally kind of the side of the my coin. first piece of work that I'm doing that I'm back. So give me a break. So he's saying, um, are there times when there are companies on sale without an event that, that have a low price that you can't explain? Right. There you go. That's a yeah. nice way to put it. And the answer is, I would imagine on hindsight, we could find really good examples of that. Um, particularly in the tech industry or in pharmaceuticals or something where um, you would look at the company as a, you know, I'm, I'm going to assume he really understands this business really well and he looks well, at it and says... But I think that that's the, next, that's the next thing is maybe that is a sign that there's a gap in the understanding. Which is kind of, yeah, here's the thing. There's kind of two options here, right? You either don't totally get it or you get it and and then what? So let's assume that he totally gets it and then what? Okay, let's assume he totally gets it and he prices it uh, or, or does a margin of safety analysis, does a payback time analysis, does the 10 cap and it's on sale. And in this, this is a really hard example, I think, is that it's never been anywhere near its sticker price. It's not up there. It hasn't ever been it up there. It hasn't been high is what you're saying. It hasn't been high and it hasn't, and it's, it's at its highest price historically ever. And I do see these happen from time to time. Oracle is like that uh, not, not very long ago, um, where it appeared to be, by all criterion margin of safety analysis, it appeared to be on sale, and yet it was at its peak price ever historically. Hmm. 
and Fiat you have to Chrysler ask has been another one that we've talked about that's been like that. Yep. And and other car companies. So here's the answer, guys. That um, unless you truly think you're smarter than all of these people who are uh, who are have gone through Goldman Sachs training, they're all Harvard graduates, they're all Columbia grads, MIT. Unless you really think you're smarter than they are, it would be a very dangerous assumption uh, that you are able to figure out the value of this business better than they can and and buy it on, and you can buy it on sale when they think it's fully priced. That would be extremely arrogant and extremely what dangerous. So I'm really I find that to I'm be really very, pushing back on that. I find that hmm? to be a very odd comment. Well, think about it. Mr. Now, in this particular example, right? The stock is at historically high prices. Yeah. It's Oracle a couple years ago. Historically high, and I think it's on sale. The tools say it's on sale. Mm-hmm. Then either my tools are geniuses who are much smarter than anybody on Wall Street who are going to they're going to push the price up if the price is low. I mean, Mr. Market is going to price this thing where it should be. The the only things that keep that from happening are basically an underappreciation of what's going on in that business or there's been an event. And when a stock is already at its historical high, then we can't say it's there's no event. Right? There's no event. So the only other possibility for Wall Street to be wrong is that all these super smart people are simply underappreciating what's going on. And you, the ruler, investor, you're not underappreciating it. You got it. You know this company's going to grow at this rate. It's going to end up with a PE right there. Your crystal ball is way better than theirs. And guys, I just don't, I'm not counting on you being that smart. And I don't think you should count on yourself being that smart either, uh, particularly if you're just getting going on this. So the inference is that a stock, a stock price, not a company's value, but a stock price will, Mm. by what you're saying, I can infer that it will um, slide around up and down with the true price where it should be generally getting hit fairly regularly. Is that what I hear you saying? Um, not, I'm not going that far as to say that. I'm saying that a company that is at its historically high price isn't, you know, it may have been flopping around to get there, but right now it's at historically high. It isn't, has never been higher than this, and there's no event. How can we assume it's on sale? That's what I'm saying. Oh, so it's the historical high that is really getting you, I think. Yeah. I mean, if the thing three years ago was at 100 and now it's at 25, I got a whole nother opinion for you here. But that's not what we're saying. We're saying in this instance, as with Oracle a couple years ago, you can look it up on a chart. It When it was at 45 bucks a share, it was... I mean, the market was holding it at 45 a share. It wasn't going up, but it was at its historical high, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And so what that means is that although the numbers look really good, when it's at historical high and you think it's on sale, you think it's on sale because the numbers look good. You're projecting a good growth rate and a good PE ratio, good free cash flow. If the market isn't taking this thing up to a reasonable value in this market, which, I mean, man, they're pricing everything higher than I want to pay. If they're not doing that on a company, it's because they know stuff you don't know about where the future could be. 
that means, for example, with Oracle, they know the longtime founder CEO is about to quit, hmm. for example. It's generally called a value trap, right? It looks cheap, but actually it looks cheap, there's something but going But there's on. stuff out there going on. Or let's say Oracle, for example, huge questions, as with IBM, right? The, can they shift to the cloud and be successful? Can they compete against Amazon's whole cloud-based business, AWS? And now here comes Microsoft out of nowhere, and boom, they have a big cloud business, and they're kicking everybody's butt. And now at the same time, the founder, the energy behind the company is taking a hike. Oh, yeah, and then the number two guy gets a heart attack. And then, and, you know, you got this stuff that's piling up uncertainty, and the market's taking a big pause and taking a big look at it. Um, so unless you have a crystal ball that's a lot better than, you know, a thousand analysts who are looking at that company, take a breath, step back, and go find something that fits the rules. Hmm. That's my view. Don't, don't make the mistake. So in, when we teach this, because we do teach about this in class in our three-day workshop, um, we basically say to everybody on day one when they're out there trying to find a company that, that is that's something they understand, if you think it's on sale, and I think this is why the question is coming in, this guy probably took our class, if you think it's on sale and there's no event, just assume it's not on sale. Just back off. You don't have a company that's on sale if there's no event. And and that's really to the heart of the question. Hmm. And the reason for that... Go ahead. Go ahead. I see you rolling, wondering, looking... Yeah, well, I'm thinking a lot about this this view that... I mean, it's, it's a bit odd, you have to admit, after so much focus on how the market is often wrong to say like, well, if the market hasn't figured it out, then you're probably not smart enough to do it. I just sort of fundamentally have a problem with that because I actually do think I'm smart enough to evaluate a company. And if I didn't, then I shouldn't, I shouldn't really be doing this, right? So it, to say that it must be underappreciated or we have to assume that it's underappreciated by the market in order to move forward... Um, yeah, I think we do. And wouldn't the, you know, there's many opposite examples, right, of companies that based on, and this is all based on forward growth rates. So based on forward growth rates of what you think is going to happen with a company, it could look decently priced to you. And yet the market isn't appreciating it because of short term considerations. Um, I think of Amazon back in like, 2010 2011 when that stock price had no business being what it was because they weren't really making that much money but people there I've I've seen some presentations from investors from back then who saw the potential of it and you know obviously did amazing so but here but look at honey the the whole game that we're playing is that we're not super smart. I, I don't want to get into a game where I've got to be smarter than people that I'm not smarter than. And those guys are Why smarter than me. Why is that even an issue? Who cares who's it's smarter than issue. who? All those graduates from Harvard and Columbia and MIT are super smart people and their careers are on the line to do exactly this kind of thing. Figure out whether Amazon is a good deal. And the fact that some of them figured it out isn't, doesn't mean anything about our ability to figure it out when it's hard, which is why our 
I don't want you to go off and start violating basic rule one strategy, which is we don't jump over six-foot bars. We don't do that. Don't try to do that. It's a huge mistake to think that you can leap over a, over a six-foot bar. No, our job is, is to jump over six-inch bars. And yet our and job I'm is telling, also to think about what's going to happen with a company in the future. And the yeah. only way to do that is to take some guesses and invent things and, and see what they plan to do and debate if you think that they're actually going to do that thing and decide if you can really trust in the growth rate that you're picking, right? Well, I don't love the idea of taking some guesses, but I guess we always have a, a little bit of uncertainty about where this thing's going to go. Of course. What, what my point is is that you can do that on companies where it's pretty obvious or you can do it on companies where it's really hard. Your example of Amazon was too hard for Buffett. Oh, so what you're and saying... And you're thinking, oh, yeah, I can do this. No, 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 you should not be thinking that you can do this. Because you will, you will take a... You will make a... Because here's the thing. We're not investing the way most of these other people invest. They're, they're buying maybe 1% of their portfolio into a company, okay? So... What we're doing is we're going in 10%. We're taking a big bite of the apple, whatever it is we're going to do. Well, not so with we this kind of company where you're not really sure, right? This would be in the risky business section where it is like 1%. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking okay. about the main so portfolio. So we're talking about main portfolio, companies at its historical high. I can't figure out a single thing wrong with it. It seems awesome, which explains why it's at its historical high. But mm -hmm. my numbers are leading me to think that it should be even higher. Should be twice as high. Should be twice as high. Mm -hmm. I mean... Okay, so I'm going to give you an example of a company I bought that, that was exactly that situation. Okay, All please right? do. Because I, I do occasionally. And it did go into the risky biz portfolio. But that's Google. So it came public at, I don't know, just under 100 bucks or something back in the day. And I didn't really understand it, so I didn't buy it at the IPO, even mm -hmm. though it had several years of track record. It was cash flow positive. Um, I bought it at 200. So I bought it after it had already doubled once. So it was at its historical high. And I still bought it. So this is the exception that proves the rule, in my view, is that this, is, this was, to me, a pretty easy call because I use their product a lot and I came to understand it. And I think understanding it was not something that a lot of people had done yet. They didn't understand how its business model worked. And it was so new that it didn't fit the criteria for a lot of what fund managers put money in. So there's the exception, all right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm okay with that exception. I, I could figure out Google. And I still love it. It's still an amazing company. I couldn't figure out Amazon, and neither could Buffett and Munger too hard, even though some Wall Street people did. All right. Oh. I couldn't figure out Facebook. I mean, they Facebook. said that they screwed up on that one. <laughs> yeah, they screwed up on it. Yeah. You're going to have to let some stuff go. You're going to realize that we screw up a lot more than, than we want to say, but our screw ups are, are, are errors of omission. We don't do something we could have maybe done. Those are screw-ups I can handle. I don't mind not making money on something I wasn't sure about. 
even though it goes up. And I'm telling you, I have to deal with that all the time. My, <laughs> my analysts will pick something and they'll look at it and they'll go, this is going to blast off. If I don't get it, I don't buy it. And then it doubles, right? And I'm just like, mm-hmm. well, that's the way she goes when you're following this strategy of six-inch bars. You're going to have companies you didn't buy into that took off. Yeah, we and, spent a bunch of time talking about that. Um, yeah. I'm still, so, so still debating that Are you grasping, are you agreeing with me here that as basic strategy, if that thing hasn't had an, an event that creates fear in all of those analysts as they jockey quarter to quarter for who's the best, um, with an event that's going to last a year to three years, that's going to kick almost all the fund managers out of that business because they don't want to be in it for a year of it losing money, they are going to go. And when they do, then we've got something that's more of a, of a six-inch bar. Not all of them are six-inch bars, but enough of them are that we can make an incredible rate of return by being patient and not trying to be better than Mr. Market at picking high prices and saying that they're on sale. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I just also think that there are a lot of companies that um, have been have been underpriced at points at which um, they maybe didn't look underpriced. And I find those intriguing. Well, yeah, just don't intrigue them into your portfolio. I mean, this is this is to to our our you know this is to our whole population of investors who have a huge range of skills and a huge range of of um, different kinds of passions and things they're interested in. That the basics of our style of investing are so fundamental, and if you stick with them, you are going to get rich. There's no way you won't. It's Stepping out of the boundaries of of our skill set, that's what gets you losses and the violation of rule number one, where you think you know the thing is at high price, but you think you know it's on sale. All right. So if you're going to do that sort of thing, you're going to jump in and buy something you think is on sale, um, even though the market is screaming that they don't think it's on sale just at least take a step back and be humble for a moment and say, wow, maybe there's something going on here I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Maybe they know stuff I don't know because they've got contacts in New York and they've got friends everywhere and they talk to venture capital guys and whatever, right? They totally are networked in ways we aren't. Yeah, which by the way is a very different thing from being smart. It's just different information. It's an information asymmetry. Okay. Point okay. Being. The point is that this whole thing about like how oh they're smarter than us is like so contrary to the whole thing of they're dumber than us and therefore they misprice stocks all the time. And just this whole sort of dichotomy constantly of like who's smarter and who's dumber, I just feel like is kind of silly. And it's really about the amount of information that people have. I, I think you and I and a lot of people listening to this podcast are very smart. And if we put our minds to it, we can do this. Uh, that's what I've learned. And uh, this idea that like these mysterious faceless people are like dumber or smarter, I just don't find that useful. But maybe maybe it's useful to other people. Well, I think it's very useful. I, mean, <laughs> I think you should really listen to your daddy. Oh, here really? 
and be a little humble. So depending on the situation. I know you went to all the same schools. You're not intimidated by all these Ivy League people because you went to those schools. No, that's not my point. My point is that you started out my education telling me that those people were dumb. And we spent like a year debating whether or not they were dumb and I was arguing for their intelligence. And now you're telling me they're really smart. I'm not trying to argue for their dumbness, but I'm trying to say we are just as smart. Well, I'm pretty sure I have never said that those Harvard graduates are dumb. Oh, I'm pretty sure sure I could roll some tape. I'm pretty sure I've said that in the context of fear, they do (laughs) dumb things. Okay, and that's very different. No, I distinctly remember you saying, (laughs) these people must be stupid. Why else would they do what they do? If I said it, it's hyperbole. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I know they're smart people. It's just that fear makes people do dumb things. It really does. That's right. I mean, when you don't have to be doing something, you do it anyway. Well, or as we spent a bunch of time talking about, it it's not it's not dumbness or smartness or fear even or bravery or whatever. It's um, it's different incentives than what we have. And I think actually here again, I would make the same point. So in this situation, what you're saying is that people who are professional in the finance world tend to have maybe more sort of scuttlebutt talk on the street type of, now you've got me using the word scuttlebutt, scuttlebutt talk on the street type of information of like, oh, so-and-so is going to quit, you know, or like uh, won't be at the company next year for whatever, like, ooh, gossipy reason. And we who are, you know, sitting in our houses on Main Street don't have that information, which is totally correct. And again, it's just different. um, It's an asymmetry. It's instead of being incentives, it's information. And I think that that's really important to acknowledge. And actually, I'm really glad we're making this point that there is different information um, from from what I have, you know, sitting in my house, looking at the Internet and reading newspapers compared to uh, to somebody on Wall Street. It is different. And sometimes that information makes them act, in your words, dumb, because, <laughs> because they go and they make decisions based on some week, you know, weekly thing or monthly thing or quarterly thing. And sometimes it makes them take decisions that are, in your words, smart, because it makes them not buy into a stock where the CEO is about to quit. And, uh, and just being aware that that information is different, I think, is actually really important. I'm really glad we're talking about it. I'm having well, a bit of me, an aha moment right now. Okay, so you could aha this, okay. that Ben Graham, so many years ago, 90 years ago, made an incredible, um, sort of had incredible insight. Uh, and that insight said that, in the long run, the stock market is a weighing machine. Mm. It is going to properly value each company. Mm-hmm. But in the short run, it's a voting machine. And by that, he meant it's about momentum and emotion, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. in the short run. Mm-hmm. And so we know that because of momentum and emotion, momentum can be momentum down, it can be momentum up, and emotion is fear and greed. The short run pricing on stocks can be badly uh, off of their value. So we know this is the general thesis that we follow 
as ruler investors, that stocks can be badly off of their, their actual value for some relatively short period of time. And over the relatively long period of time, they're going to be properly balanced. Mm-hmm. They're properly priced. Mm-hmm. Which okay? is why I think you you emphasize so much the historical high part of that piece That's of exactly information. Exactly right. Because if the company is historically not gone above this price point ever, and there's no visible event, then where's the emotion coming from? There's no momentum carrying it forward at this point because it's peaked out. It's all been momentum to this point. Where's the emotion? Where's the fear? Mm. Where's the greed? Mm. Mm. And it's drained out of the market. And when it's drained Mm. out of the market, you're going to be looking at a company that Mr. Market is looking at pretty objectively and it may be priced properly. He may be weighing that company actually pretty properly for what's going on there. So... Mm, I really I like think we that. should wrap this. We yeah. beat this around a bit. But I would love you to think more seriously, take it more seriously, that if you really don't identify the fear and the event that's driving the fear, be very, very careful before you pull the trigger on a company where it doesn't have that. I've just written down for myself, which I think might make it onto my checklist. Where is the emotion? Where's the fear? Where's the greed? Because I'm not sure I've actually pinpointed like, that per, that angle to it. It's like, oh, what's the event? What's happening with it? Why do you know whatever? Blah blah blah. But not like, where is it? Like, if you're looking at a company that's just been on a really lovely, steady upswing, <laughs> where is the emotion? It's like you're right. There, there isn't. There's no fear. There's no greed. It's just sort of mm, everything's all right. There it is. Yeah, everything's good. Um, except yep. that, except that maybe it's not because they're not pricing it higher. Well, we got another question. Yes, that we but we, pick up we're going to do next that week. next time. Another quick questions. Yeah, Dad. we keep thinking we're going to knock off five or six of these in one shot, but we don't. So the <laughs> I next one I think would. is really cool, and it, it and it's a really good question. It is about public companies in bankruptcy. Yes. Yeah. All right. So mm-hmm. we'll be back next week with that. And uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks for bearing yeah. with my brain fog. It'll probably be here for another few weeks, let's be honest. (laughs) Time to go play, guys. See ya. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.